Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 606 with D. Lincoln. If you really drill down to one thing, it was that the owners were there. The leadership was inside the four walls. We opened the door. We locked the door. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website gets on it. Everybody loves payday. Am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable, and when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash un unstoppable with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest d lincoln my girl d are you feeling unstoppable today i am feeling unstoppable i'm (laughs) ready that's what we like to hear (laughs) d lincoln aka the queen of steaks is a wrecking is recognized as a female powerhouse in the male dominated steakhouse business born on the 4th of july and raised in new orleans or new orleans as you're supposed to say i'm clearly from new hampshire uh lincoln's humble entrance into the restaurant industry can be traced back to a single Del Frisco's steakhouse in her hometown. In the early 80s, the Del Frisco brand made its way to Dallas, which is how Dee found her way to Texas. Fast forward 30 years in the steak business, and the D. Lincoln brand was born. Today, the D. Lincoln brand includes D. Lincoln's Tasting Room and Bubbles Bar at the Dallas Cowboy AT&T Stadium, D. Lincoln Private Events in Uptown Dallas, and her most recent project, D. Lincoln Prime, located at the Star in 
Briscoe, man, you got a lot going on. I do have a lot going on, but <laughs> you're making me sound very busy. I just, I cannot <laughs> wait to dive into your story. I mean, over probably 40 years now of experience, 30 years, and another 10 years of your own your own brand. Well, we, I had Del Frisco's actually about 28, and I left in tw- in 2010. So we're coming up on on 10 more. So yeah, it's oh, beautiful. Uh, yes, I was 22 years old, so I'm telling my age. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just realizing I did not give you a heads up that this is where I have you get that motive motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. Do you have one that you can think of? Life is for a living. Yes. I love I it. I sign my wine bottle. I sign my tequila bottle. <laughs> I sign my menu. Life is for living. Why, how does that resonate to you? Really dive into why that's your mantra. You know, um, my, uh, speak of mentors, Jamie Coulter, which is a gentleman who actually purchased Del Frisco. So as we get into the story, tell you a little more on that. But, um, you know, he just, uh, that was his whole uh, motto is just that you know living life life is for living and always seeing uh, the cup half full instead of half empty it's kind of how I lived my life and so it just really is what emulates who I am and what I stand for why not live if you're alive right exactly I love it. great way to get this thing started so <laughs> You mentioned you're 22 years old. That's how you make your break into this industry. Take us to that point or take us to where you knew you wanted to get into the restaurant industry and when, like, when you knew you were going to commit your life to it. I really um, look back and what I can say is I was born and raised in New Orleans, as you said, and it's all about food and hospitality. It's all about people. And I love, love, love people. But ironically is that my mother was in the hotel business and the last thing she wanted, I was one of five an only girl with four brothers. And the last thing she wanted was for me to be in this industry because (laughs) I saw the long hours and what was involved. And, um, as uh, faith would have it, I was dating a guy in the club business. I have to just give you a little yeah. story that probably no one's heard uh, in a long time. And, you know, one night his cocktail waitress didn't show up. And so I grabbed that tray because I love people and it was good music, <laughs> some New Orleans going on in there. And I cocktailed. And my mom walked in and said, what in the world are you doing? Put that tray down. And I didn't. And uh, <laughs> I made uh, quite a bit of money for a 19-year-old. Yeah. I thought, oh, I kind of like this. So really, um, that was just a little teaser. But starting in the actual restaurant business was due to my first partner of 14 years, a gentleman by the name of Dale Wamstead who was a Popeye's fried chicken franchisee and he didn't make it. And so he said, I'm going to do something different and there'll never be chicken on our menu. And to this day, there's not chicken on my menu. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it about Dale that he, how did he bring you into the industry? How did that happen? So we met in New Orleans and like you said uh, in the intro in the very early eighties and Ruth Chris was the only steakhouse in New Orleans. And when people went to the city, You really never thought about going to New Orleans for steak. I mean, you obviously went to great restaurants that had a good steak on the menu that might have a twist. But Ruth Vertel's story was pretty amazing. I mean, she actually was a single mom, bought one steakhouse on Broad Street, then bought a second one called Chris's. Her name was Ruth Vertel, so combined Ruth Chris, and raised her two boys, lived on top of the building on Broad. And from afar, like we, uh, you know, just watched that and just had uh, unbelievably admiration for a steakhouse to be that successful. And 
My first business partner of 14 years was a talented cook. He was not a chef, and he had just a passion for this industry. And and we met in a little small 14-table restaurant in New Orleans and started working together. And he spent his time in the kitchen, and and, uh, I spent my time in the dining room. And and, um, through uh, some personal tragedies, we made our way to Dallas, and Ironically, it was probably the best thing that ever happened, you know, mm-hmm. that we took, um, you know, an unfortunate situation, both of us, and segued to this uh, city and really exceeded all expectations. So I want to go deeper into your come up, into how you got into the industry, the key mentors you had, uh, the key lessons that you think you pulled from those early days that contributed to your success today, like specifically values and how to treat people and how to run a business and the things you picked from this uh, Del Frisco restaurant group that they're in themselves a very successful group, 30 year run and it's still going to this day. Um, And you know, Del Frisco's restaurant group did not exist. And so that's, what's interesting is that it didn't exist until 20, 12 when it became a public company. Okay. So what's interesting is that it was just Del Frisco's in New Orleans and it was two people. It was Dale Wamstead and D. Lincoln. And we literally are the people who worked it, who opened, who closed, who who spent all of our time in the building inside four walls. Um, Dale Wamstead in the New Orleans restaurant in the early days, and as I said earlier, is that, you know, um, I was widowed and at, at, a, at an early you know age, and and had an opportunity to make my way to Dallas with Dale Wamstead, and we actually did a franchise. Okay. In um, so we were in New Orleans, and we didn't even have a franchise agreement because it was too too complicated and too sophisticated. We just had a, a group of people in Dallas, as well as a couple in Houston that had an interest in Del Frisco. So put together a licensing agreement and opened one on 1960 in Houston, and actually. Um, Dale and I spent some time out there with the couple and then segue to Dallas with a, um, a group of gentlemen that Dale had grown up with. And one of them was his attorney. And so we licensed uh, them here. And, um, and as faith would have it is that the Crescent court opened in uptown Dallas and they moved the original location that was on Lemon Avenue that had opened in 1986. They moved it to the Crescent and because of being personally guaranteed on a lease, um, you know, Dale looked at me and said, Hey, you know, want to go to Dallas and start all over again. And it, like I said, you know, just coming off of a tragedy in my life, it was just a way to have a fresh start. Mm. And so came to Dallas and we made these quirky, corny radio commercials to greet you in the kitchen, Del Frisco, to greet you in the dining room, D. Lincoln. We had no money and we literally unlocked our doors and the lines were around the corner. Instead of fighting the Crescent Court and closing that Del Frisco's through legal, we did it I guess you could say organically. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So how much time elapsed from when you got involved with the steakhouse in New Orleans to the, making the move out to Texas? Actually, there was there was um, a lot of involvement all alone, but in 
1989, you know, so we did 82 and we did uh, 84 in Houston and then we did 86 opening up the Lemon Avenue location, but we weren't operating it. Dale Wompson and I. Lemon Avenue, is that, where is that? Sorry. That's a location in downtown. Okay. Well, it's not downtown Dallas. It's actually, I'd say Dallas So you proper. made your way out here in the mid 80s. Mid 80s. That's okay. correct. So any key lessons, any key mentors uh, before you opened your own place with Dale? Well, you know, I was very young. I was 22. And so I have to say back then, the only thing I really that stands out to me was a gentleman named Warren LaRuth, who um, did great things in, in the industry and had a beautiful place in um, the suburbs of New Orleans. But back then, I really, I have to say that that watching my mom be in the industry mm-hmm. and just watching... Um, how my my grandmother cooked and then my journey from 22 to 29 having just a lot of of um family members that were so committed to food but the true two mentors that I had was one Dale Wamstead because he was older mm-hmm. and had had success and had failures and so he was my first mentor of 14 years because I was learning the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. He actually was the one who had that piece of it. I was more the hospitality and connected with the customers and the guests and that kind of a thing. And he was the guy trimming the steaks in the kitchen and making the recipes and starting with simple ingredients like salt and pepper and cream and butter and not all these fancy things that you see today. Just all the basics that you would find in your cupboard Mm -hmm. at home. And so that was really when I look back on my career was two mentors that stood out, which was Dale Wamstead of the 14 years. And then when we sold Del Frisco's in 1995 of Jamie Coulter, who to this day is still a great mentor of mine. So let's dive into how Dale influenced you and what you learned from him, not just about, not just about the business, but also about how to be and how to be a leader and all that kind of thing. You know, it was very, very interesting. I really looked to him as the operations piece of it, you know, and, and so when I look through this career and I think about from the time we got to Dallas and like I said, we made our way in the mid eighties to really getting into it in 1989, 90, because of all the changes and, in, in the, um, our lives and then the the license agreements not working and us really him going back into the original location me opening a second location and we would literally use a spreadsheet like back in the day they were not pos systems they were no point of sales they were like you know almost like old-fashioned cash registers all the way through the (laughs) mid 80s to the 90s when we sold which was in 1995 and so we literally would ring up our evening and every night we'd look at the Z which was a tape you know and we it was and so watching him you know in the kind of the core of of the operation and then as we got like we really have something great here then we started to bring in you know young I call them kids but you know like chefs that could could cook Warren LaRue speaking of him where he came to Dallas and he had Toda Johnson and Wales. He traveled the country. His son did great things with Outback. I mean, you know, so they had a big food background. So how could we be better with our recipes? How could we make our turtle soup from scratch versus if we growing and we're going to start expanding the brand, how can we make a 
like a spice pack. How can we, like, you know, be able to do this? How he'd say it is like, you know, he said you can take the heart out without killing it, where it would be consistent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and so, you know, so I kind of, that was kind of a twofold for me and that we kind of ran the business together, if you may, mm-hmm. is because we literally were running the operations during service and then closing it every night ourselves and counting the money if you may Mm -hmm. and that's what we did all the way through the 80s mid 90s and um he was running one restaurant i was running the second location they were both in strip centers one was in addison texas one was more in the, the proper dallas and we at the end of the night you know he lived this way we would meet up and compare what he did and what i did and then we had our you know, an unbelievable opportunity to combine the two lease properties into a location that was located on Spring Valley Road in Dallas, Texas. And it was just empty land and uh, went in front of the city council, zoned it commercial versus residential, bought the land, built the building, and really um, put the two together. And that was... um, what I didn't realize at the time was it was embarking on a new journey. We went from two strip centers that we were running and doing fantastic, but to combining where now the business was, you know, owning the real estate, his wife owned the building, you know, building a, a restaurant from the ground up and opening up in 1993 with no debt on the business. So what was it about these two locations? Uh, well, actually, before I ask that question, the Crescent location. Am I saying that it was the Crescent? Mm-hmm. Um, you said that, that there was some some weird issue in the beginning with that. That could have been a bad situation, but you turned it into a good situation. Can so you what happened? About that? So what happened there was that um, a gentleman from Mississippi and a couple of attorneys that were personal friends um, were the licensees on Lemon Avenue, which was our original Del Frisco's in this city. And when they came in, they were operating as a license agreement. And we were not running that. Dale was not running that on a day-to-day basis. And they had an opportunity to move the location to the Crescent Court, which was a brand-new development with a beautiful restaurant site. So they took it on upon themselves to move it to the Crescent location. And by doing that, there was still a lease on Lemon Avenue. And... They all came to me one day and said, hey, you want to move to Dallas? We're going to go back in that location, and we're going to just go in there. We're not going to you know, go in and fight and get attorneys and try to get them to close the Crescent because technically they had jumped the lease and violated the licensing agreement. And instead, we went in, and Dale went in and operated that when we looked for a, a, another location, which was far north, we thought at the time, which now I'm really far north. <laughs> um, and as I said, started making radio commercials and said, we're back, reaching the dining room, reaching the kitchen. And it was a matter of less than a year that the Crescent Court closed. I, mean, I just kind of wanted like, wait, the Crescent Court closed? Uh, it's that was- a location because it wasn't us. It, okay. was, it was basically like came back in to almost compete against the licensee. Okay. I still think I'm a little confused. So you went into the Crescent, the Crescent we Court. We didn't. The licensee no, did. The licensee did. But you, you were a part of making all the commercials and everything. When we came back. When you came back. So I'm sorry. Yeah. So we were not living here from 86 to 89 and 90. We were, we were in New Orleans still. Okay. So, so 
operating as a licensee was the people here on Lemon Avenue, as well as the people on 1960 in Houston. A lot of moving parts going on here. Yes. So, so what was it that you, you think made you guys so successful? What were you doing right that made you so successful? Well, ironically, is that when we started in New Orleans... Um, and then that restaurant closing and us coming to Dallas was through a you know was through a series of events that um, I don't think we we knew at the time. Like I said, I don't think that I would have landed in Dallas, Texas, and not sure what would have happened along the way with the Del Friscos there because um, it's crazy. But my business partner actually he was shot by his first wife. Oh my gosh. At the Del Frisco's in New Orleans. So that restaurant wind up closing. And so the only thing that was operating was a two licensee. And so we went through and moved along in life with Dale doing his own thing. That was not the restaurant piece, exception of the fact that these two restaurants were still operating as a licensee. And I was in New Orleans working and doing something completely different from, you know, from the 80, say that 85 is probably when, so 85 all the way through, through, like I said, through the nineties, the, the early, no, no, the late eighties, okay, because, because unfortunately after that happened with him in 1988, I lost my husband in a tragic automobile oh. accident. So that, those two things brought us back, like brought us back full circle yeah. though. And actually and said, Hey, you know what? There's some things going on in Dallas. I'm starting over. He had a beautiful wife and starting his life over. And, you know, my dad saying, you need to leave Louisiana and take this opportunity to go start over. Mm-hmm. And that all happened when, you know, as I, I have you know, just strong faith that it wasn't an accident, was by these licensees jumping the lease on Lemon Avenue, going to the Crescent Court in 1989, and giving us a chance to come back to that original location. So what was it that you think you did so well in that original location that really just set you up, that you had lines out the door and you were doing these radio ads? Like, What were you doing right that we can take from that experience? First of all, we were executing inside the walls in regards to unbelievable you know, food. And I know that everybody does great steaks and I commend, you know, all my colleagues across the country, not only in this city, but I think that no matter what, being from New Orleans, you know that you have a good product, but you have to season. You have to whatever you identify that with. And as I said earlier, is that we we wanted simplicity, shrimp marmalade, shrimp cocktail, turtle soup, steak straightforward with, you know, kosher salt and pepper and butter and happy to tell our customers how to do it and share recipes and, you know, that kind of a thing. But if you really drill down to one thing, it was that the owners were there. The leadership was inside the four walls. We opened the door. We locked the door. Why is that so important? Um, for me, as I look back on it, is that you create a family. I always felt like the internal guest was the most important, which was my team. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt is that if they're not happy, they cannot translate what you want to give to the customers. But to touch every table and to have an owner's presence, and I'm reliving it again right now, it is like people are just blown away. Like it's not just her name on the building. Like she's still active in this business. I would have never started this over again at, you know, as we move through my journey, had it not been that I would be here, that my name would be on the building, that I wanted to meet my guests. But along the way is that 
you have to translate your vision. You can create a culture and you can, you know, you can lead by example. You can be there, but people have to carry that out. You can't grow. You can't operate one restaurant, two restaurants, five restaurants without people getting it. And I think that the greatest gift that I have and I have had, and it's, it's really rang true because of where I am today with this place is the fact that I always led by example. I always, you could touch, feel, I was always accessible. And you, when you grow, you have to be extremely careful because I've seen it from both sides and, and, uh, you know, be in, as we move to the sale and how you go from one great restaurant to, I built eight of them. It's, um, you know, it's, it's tough. So what things have you seen? You said you've seen what happens as you grow. What in your opinion is happening as you see these, these companies grow, what's going wrong where they lose the soul? You know, and you said it is that I think these restaurants are, um, once you, you start growth and you start looking at, expansion and you start thinking about Wall Street, you start managing a completely different deal. You start managing the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And I um and and you you don't really think about you know how much less salt and pepper I use. Maybe I use margarine instead of butter. Maybe I do you know, up, upper choice versus prime. Maybe I, you know, every little corner, maybe that I did a hundred percent crab meat and now I, you know, I put, you know, a mix in it. I mean, all these little things because you managing a different, the bottom line, a different piece and you can still do it right. And, um, and still make, you know, tremendous money. And in multi-unit, what a lot of times people I think don't realize is that you can leverage your buying. And that's what I learned from Jamie Coulter is that, you know, when you look at, I had a 14 year career as a private company from 82 to 1995, 13 years. In 1995, we sold Del Frisco's. And as I mentioned earlier, we combined the two strip centers into one great location that opened in 1993 on Spring Valley Road, which is just a little bit south of here. And again, Dale was in the kitchen in 93. I was in the dining room. What we thought, one restaurant was doing 4 million, one restaurant was doing 3 million. Well, we thought that we would combine 7 million. If we did five, owning the building, owning the real estate, paying yourself the percentage rent or the rent, 6%, whatever, or the base, however you set it up, was going to be like we would be way ahead. What we didn't realize is that combining both of our forces under one roof, we wound up doing 10 million our first year in business. So wait, you said you can still own everything and make good money. There's a way to do it. How, how exactly do you do it? I want to make sure I understand exactly how you believe that's done. So as I said before, is we combined two restaurants that were in strip centers into one great place. At that point, we were not thinking expansion. Okay. We were thinking one place being the very best it could be given 110% every single day. And it proved out by us being there by her leadership, by the right people in the back of the house, the right people in the front of the house, buying great product, executing it, shaking hands, kissing babies, locking the door, unlocking the door, counting the money. So we in this one great place, and this is in 1993, we had combined the two had an opportunity to um, look at a building in Fort Worth 
45 minutes from here, just east. I'm sorry, west. And um, wind up going into downtown Fort Worth, buying a building uh, for $600,000. My business partner, after 14 years, he was going to run the business. I was going to, along with his children, we would own the building. And this is, you know, probably we bought that building in late 93. And as we were going through this whole process, just working six nights a week, no lunches, dinner only, at the one on Spring Valley, a public company that was a state company started looking at us and started coming in going, what are these people doing? Like, the owners are here. We've traveled all over the country. We've looked at Sparks, Smith & Walensky's, um, Morton's. I mean, you know, the big chains, Ruth Chris, um, and they like Ben Benson's. We've looked at steakhouses across the country, uh, Chop House, Gene and Giorgetti's in Chicago. I mean, on and on. And they have some owner presence. I mean, some good owner presence in these places. But what are they doing in Dallas, Texas, that is just like wall-to-wall people every time we come in? And... I said to my, my, my business partner, like, they're, they're going to want to buy us. Like, like I just like, you know, they're not here for just to, you know, see what we do. And it's like, they're, they're on a mission. And as, as it turned out, they were a public, already public company called Lone Star Steakhouse and Saloon. And they had hired the president of Morton's. And Jamie Coulter was set out, who by far is my, my mentor, Still to this oh, day. I have his name written down. We're going to dive into how he's influenced. Yeah. And um, and so uh, he did his due diligence and said, this is not just a Dallas steakhouse. If you pull credit card receipts, you will see, you know, 8% from New York, 6% from L.A., 4% from Chicago. This is a brand. This Del Frisco's Double Eagle is a brand. And one thing we probably should go back on a moment is that we had the two steakhouses, Del Frisco Steakhouse. And when we built this one great mega place on Spring Valley, that's just beautiful building. And that's when Del Frisco's Double Eagle was born. Okay. So I think what I'm pulling from you when I ask exactly how do you stay small? How do you stay a mom and pop or a independent operation and still make good money? It sounds like you make the good money by ob- obtaining assets, the building, the land is and then also doing the volume because you have that presence. Because people aren't just coming for the steak. They're coming for oh, you experience. and Dale and, and everybody and the culture that you've built because you're there and you care for your people. Is that what I'm – is that what – That's you, exactly. Okay. And like I said, you know, having the two locations and one of us at each spot in the early days and then combining to, to Spring Valley, it was like now we put us both under one roof. Because, then, you know, because when we you got can, here – Combined forces. Of, we combine forces. So now it really is Del Frisco in the kitchen and D. Lincoln in the dining room. And we had a huge following in Dallas, Texas, because people wanted that touchy-feely personal. As well, if you look back to where we were back then to where the steakhouse industry is today in Dallas and across the country, it is changed. How's it changed? And cause, because I think that so much was chef driven and so much was all these great little spots or these big fancy places and stuff and small 
amazing food, but small plates and people who are small amounts of people were leaving and they were going to find the best burger joint they could find. Okay. The truth was, is that the simplicity of meat and potatoes, people didn't get it. And we did early Mm -hmm. on. And the industry back then, in my opinion, is completely different to now because when people travel today, the first place they look for is where are the great steakhouses in yeah. every city. You go to Texas, you're going to get steak. You go to New York, you get steak. You yeah. go to you go to Vegas now, and you yeah. got all the chefs that just got their names tied to steak. So guess what? Still, at the end of the day, the core is steak. It's meat and potatoes. And <laughs> yeah. so, how we put twist on it? What do we do differently? You know, what can we? Do with our seafood. What can we do with appetizers? What can we offer? How can we do it? So it could be a charcuterie place, you know, like present when you walk in. Or you can have a raw bar. Or you can... But it's any way you travel now. It's like it was not chefs. Real big time, big name chefs across the country did not look at steak in the 80s like they look at steak today. Mm. And I, without a doubt, believe that that's how it got so sexy. Mm-hmm. Steak houses weren't sexy back then. <laughs> I mean, they weren't. You know? So d- did you end up selling uh, to the Lone Star Group in 95? Does that end up what happened? That's what happened. And that's when my whole life changed. So you built an asset. You built something of value. And that's how you, you can do one thing really well and do it better than anybody else. And you can get become successful by just having one asset. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. No well, doubt. So we've been dancing around Jamie Culture's name uh, for a little bit now, and we, <laughs> I really want to pull how he influenced you. Uh, you said he's your mentor even to this day. Who is Jamie Culture? What has he taught you about how to be in about business? So Jamie Culture was, um, he actually uh, is born in San Antonio, lived in Wichita, Kansas, um, was the largest back in his early years, one of the largest Pizza Hut franchisees in the country. He was one of the largest and um, had, you know, obviously a, a passion for the the restaurant industry. And he bought this small chain of steakhouses. And, you know, I say chain, but it was actually owned by an individual. And he bought like two steakhouses of, of four in his early, early days. And built Lone Star to eight locations and took it public. Now, that is really hard to do. He was, you know, obviously he's chairman and CEO of of Lone Star, but he was just, you know, YPO and connections to Wall Street and what he did in the the food industry, but what he did in oil and gas, what he did in investments. I mean, so he was very dialed in to the whole world in the, in Investments and, and so he decided that with this Lone Star Steakhouse and Saloon, with eight restaurants as a public company, that he was going to go across the country and find one high end that he would pick to put in his portfolio, and then he would conceptualize something in the middle. So Lone Star was the low end, all choice. A steakhouse was going to be prime and the creme de la creme, and in the middle he was going to conceptualize something that compares to these grills now. But if you look back, he did create a brand called Sullivan's. So there was there was Lone Star, Sullivan's, and he purchased El Frisco's, one restaurant in 1995, one under construction, paid $23 million wow. for one restaurant. Jeez Louise. The most ever paid till this day for one restaurant. Wow. 
Me and Dale Wamsett, cash dog deal. <laughs> 35 years old, by the way. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, what did he teach you, though? You, you kind of so explained he, who he is, but what did you so, learn from him? So when he started looking at, um, and this will be, you know, you'll really get it. So when he started looking at going across the country, looking at all these brands, and kind of, you know, drilling down on the fact that I really think we're going to do a deal with these people, with this, with these two people. And started spending a lot of time in the restaurant and watching. And we had, you know, of course, lots and lots of meetings, meetings and lots of attorneys and lots of kind of what, you know, they would think that uh, they would want to do with Del Frisco's and how they would grow it and what their plan was and what they would pay for one restaurant that we own the real estate there. Uh, well, actually, Dale's wife owned the real estate there. And then uh, um, myself and his children on the real estate in Fort Worth, but we had not opened that one yet. But he saw that, okay, so there's, they own the real estate on two. He got a restaurant doing $10 million that's only been in this location combined since 1993. And this is the early part of uh, 95 when this all started happening. We'd had a, a one full year. So we had you know, 93, all of 94, and then 95 when they started this process. And he was like, this brand can grow, and these people are doing it differently than anybody else. And it goes back to, we had a soul. We had culture inside the walls. We treated people with just the utmost respect. We worked hands-on with them. But did he want to scale? Was he trying to scale that? Didn't he know that if he bought you out of it, he would have lost all of that? Well, you know what? He felt as he worked with us through the process, he said, D. Lincoln can go across this country and she can train. Okay. And she can So he bought you with the brand. He bought me with the brand. But at the time he was he was buying I thought us with the brand. Within 90 days, my business partner of 14 years resigned. Oh man. What but, happened there? Why did he resign? And you know what? I look back on it and I knew then and I don't feel any differently today. He had climbed the top of the mountain. He had staked his ground. He's a rebel. And although he thought he could go work for a public company and he could expand you know our baby it just he could never ever have lived within that structure people some people just don't fit and in they boxes. don't they don't fit in the box but what he didn't know but you know you got to look at it jamie coulter and and dale womstead were born on the same day the same year and they're going to both be 79 on october the 20th wow it's crazy okay what is the chances of that okay so you had two identical human beings <laughs> that were so great at what they yeah. did but the difference in jamie was he understood the four walls but he understood business and he mm. understood wall street and he understood scale and understand he understood how to build a team he understood what leadership meant who should lead that team mm-hmm. and he knew the day that we sold that restaurant and we announced on September the 15th of 1995 in San Francisco in the last three minutes of a public presentation that they had purchased Del Frisco's. Everybody went bonkers. It was crazy. I like, you know, and he knew that he had bought a brand, but he had invested in an individual. And at the time he thought, you know, we could do this, but he knew that I would go across this country and work relentlessly to to share my vision, you know, the passion that I had to train and to commit to staying on site 
to spend time in these buildings and with these people. And I did just that. So I always say that I look back and he said, I'm going to get you out of those four walls. He goes, I'm about to like take the pop off the top <laughs> off the, the vinegar bottle. He didn't even call it champagne back then. Now it's champagne. <laughs> I think this is a good time to take a break to, to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. I'm loving this conversation, by the way. <laughs> So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. All right, we're back and you were just at the point of your story where, uh, uh, Jamie culture comes in and he's like, we're going to, we're going to scale this thing. We're going to take it to the next level. And you're going all over the country to, to scale this concept. Take it from there. What did you learn about scaling and, and growing? Well, what I will say, to, uh, is that again, going back to defining what people think is scale because his primary goal was he knew what he had purchased and it was a very special place that had actually um had a huge personality had a big personality behind it okay and so he was committed to growing but like i said he had a casual brand that he was able to scale a lot faster so he was very careful on what he was going to do with del frisco's and how quickly it would move and he was also at the time we had still not conceptualized sullivan's and so he committed to picking markets that he felt that we could go into however if you look at it i had an 11 year career with him and we only opened five del frisco's five why do you think that is and again because he didn't think that this brand could be cookie cutter yeah and you, when you no was, doubt. Why is that? Well, what happens when you start to scale? What happens to the soul? What happens to the, the, the personality that you describe? You can't, you know, if, if your goal is to open, and if, I know people do it, and uh, you, to open this caliber of a restaurant, and when I say this caliber of restaurant is Del Frisco's or where we're sitting today in my own D. Lincoln Prime, is that you can't open 8, 10, 12, a restaurant a month. I mean, there's a whole different purpose there's a whole different goal when it comes to that. So if you really look at taking a brand that is very unique, that's doing one place doing 10 million, opening up a second location in Fort Worth that's now opening up doing 5 million in Fort Worth, Texas. Now we're looking at, okay, what's the market? Another opportunity to buy a building. He goes to Denver, Colorado. And 
we open that own the real estate go in there do all the marketing the right way I, I you know my background I used to go to the Fort Worth stock show buy steers it was a big you know work with these kids and it was all still do, you know tied to Del because it was all personal it was always touching and feeling and it was like how do we do this and we do it by leadership it's, we do it by the fact that I have a backup team for her we'll, we assemble training teams we assemble but she is in these buildings and she is at the orientation she is telling these people that somebody else has helped hire okay that they've already got 100 people in a room now we're going to say drill down to there's 50 people we're going to select then when orientation starts and training starts and you unlock your doors d lincoln was on location Mm mm-hmm how long were you on location from the day the doors opened? So I would stay a good six to eight weeks. I lived in New York a year. That's how long I stayed on location <laughs> in New York. A year. I could not do that. You personally. know, so, um, <laughs> but everyone was different and we were engaged in the community and we were telling the same story that I'm telling you. And people were interested, and they and so we got them in the door. Mm-hmm. And when we got them in, they're like, "Oh my gosh, this is not just about the food. This is not just about the service. This is not just about the ambiance. This is all about the whole total experience." Mm. And what I witness now, and that you know, this was '95, all the way to 2006. We opened. They bought Dallas, opened Fort Worth, opened Denver. Open Manhattan, open Las Vegas, okay? Imagine a little girl from Texas, 35 years old, going into Manhattan, okay? That's pretty crazy, (laughs) okay? But I had a big powerhouse behind me. I had a mentor like Jamie Coulter who was known on Wall Street, who was very respected, like I said, in the investment world, not only in the restaurant world. And he went into New York with a big statement, 16,000 square foot wow. restaurant at 49th and 6th Avenue. So we right in the heart of Rockefeller Center and we went on site, him and I, and we lived in that city and we worked it every day, higher and higher and higher. And staff. it was insane. I mean, like literally 20 hour work days and he would travel all over the country. He'd come back, and there I was. And, you know, unfortunately for me, I did not have my daughter at the time. I only have one daughter. She's 18. And she was not born until December of 2000. And I opened that restaurant in March of 2000. And so I had all the time prepping for it. And then the opening in March, all the way to the doctor forced me home in October. <laughs> Still kept my place in New York. So we opened five from 1995 to 2006 and I learned so much about the business piece of it I mean you know because all I knew was opening I mean having that one great spot whereas I said before you know we were using old-time cash registers where now I'm dealing with a public company there's accountability there's a board there is um you know, the world looking at the company and Del Frisco's was this little tiny piece okay so we did this from 95 to 2006. 2006, the company goes back private with an equity firm. There was only five Del Frisco's. There was 400 Lone Stars. We had conceptualized Sullivan's, and there was 19 of those. We had bought Texas Land and Cattle out of bankruptcy, and this equity firm was buying it just for real estate play. The Del Frisco's didn't even count back then to them. Didn't count. Which So they split the brands up. 
decided that they were, you know, going to put Sullivan's and Dell's over here. They were going to do the casual over here, separate the two brands. I stayed with the company from 2006 to 2010. Tried to sell it outright in 2008. Didn't get a sale. Tried to take it public. Did roadshow. The whole world fell apart in 2008. Yeah. In 2010, I said, People you know aren't what? spending money on steak no, in you know, 2010. N- you know, and it's really kind of strange because actually we still were getting like a, a, a whole international market in New York. Vegas was all about tourists. Spring Valley never missed a beat. So this one little tiny brand was doing great, but we were owned by a private equity firm. They started managing. We didn't even matter. I mean, it was at the end of the day. It didn't matter. There was five little They're restaurants over there. They were just like, you know what, this, you know, yeah. this, you know, 400 restaurants. It's, they were looking on a way, how can we take this back public and spend, you know, and spend this out? So I just spent from 2006 to 2010 going, you know what, I can't keep Delfrisco's what it is. It's changing every day. Mm. And, you know, and it's out of my control. What's the lesson there? And the lesson was for me is that. They had a different business model. And what was I, their business model? And their business model was the fact that they wanted to grow it as quick as they could, make as much money as it could, and flip the brand. What was your business model? And my business model was that I wanted to grow it in a controlled way. I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be hands-on. And I didn't want to be so big that it lost its soul. And so I fought the culture and the soul and I had to respect the the money and the, the scale and the fact that, you know, if we do 75% things right, you know, and, and what, I, what I learned is they didn't want a D. Lincoln. They really didn't. You know, after Jamie Coulter sold it and he knew the value and we were going to grow it a different way and we would have grown it and we would have made as much money with 10 stores as they could make with 40 stores. So when when D or sorry, when uh, Jamie sold it, did he sell you with it? Like as far as like your. No. So we we took it back private and with an equity firm. He left that day. And basically, we negotiated our own deals. Okay. And so, and obviously, I was committed to seeing what they had to do and what they had to say. It's your baby. It was my baby. It was the worst four years of my career. What did you, what, what's your big lesson from this whole thing? If you could go back in time and change anything, what did you learn? I learned that in an entrepreneurial success story, you have to be involved. Mm. I dig that. <laughs> and and you can't, and, and you have to step back enough to say, through this journey, there's going to be change, and you, you know it's out of your control. Like, if they wanted to go build, I don't know how many they got now. They might have 30 stores now. I don't even know because, you know, I don't pay attention to them anymore because I'm concentrating on the D-Lincoln brand. But... You know, it was like they don't want a D Lincoln, so don't you know? Don't take it so personal. Yeah, all the things you fighting for is wearing you out. Like they have a different mission. Their mission is money, and it's scale, and it's Wall Street, and it's and it's like and and it's like we're gonna go to the masses, and you know, and we're gonna we're still gonna probably beat out most brands out there because we're doing enough right that the 
you know, most people, the percentage of the people that they need for the success don't even recognize that there's a difference. So, you know, today, I think that they're, they, you know, who, like I said, they may have to leave the stores. I don't know. But when I felt this every day, this pull in my gut of why am I doing this? I have been blessed. I had a 14-year career with one gentleman. I had the most amazing years of my life with Jamie Coulter, traveling the world, traveling around, whether we it was for a Lone Star site or it was a, a site for Sullivan's that we had conceptualized or it was rather looking at what we were going to do with Del Frisco's. But I was had access to, you know, just a great leader in just a unbelievable businessman and I was okay I was like you know it's time for me to move on I have a beautiful daughter there's no redo here and I don't want to like go to work and fight all of these corporate people that have a different mission yeah, than different me agenda. Like this- whole different agenda and I was like okay well I'm making great money and oh why would you walk away from that now because I am not happy yeah. the other variable here too this entire time over this 30 year period of you getting all this experience and developing your brand and you're becoming an asset not just for what you've built but because of who you've become and the lessons you've learned so now you can go on and do your own thing and any investor would see what you're tied to and say you mean you made your own doing this but now you can get other money because of what you've become and who you've become as an asset right that's right so uh, before we move into you developing your own brand uh, the D Lincoln brand I feel like there's still one more nugget because you said you learned so much from Jamie uh, his last name is Culture, Culture yeah. thank you from so much from Jamie Culture about how he ran business we got your story but I don't know if we got one nugget one thing that he taught you about what a successful business needs or any, any way that he brought you up another level and oh, brought you to that next place. Give, me, give us one nugget of know, how he influenced you. Having to know my numbers, know every asset of it. I mean, not just from the fact that I love the hospitality piece of it and that, you know, I had a big company behind me that was like, you know, just that you could have CPAs, you could have this, you could have that. No, being accountable for everything you do in your business, being accountable for and understanding every aspect of it. And I was so in enthralled in the people and the guests and the whole thing and, and stuff and, and especially as that independent and now I'm like oh my gosh it's like you know we got like it's huge big accountability in the financial piece so it was there mm-hmm. you know and but I mean I gosh I looked at a spreadsheet I mean the first time I saw P&L I was scared to death I'm yeah. like well my god what's all these things on here and you know and just just the whole that you have to know every aspect of your business and do it better than anyone else. I mean, I tell you, I have great chefs. I have great event planners. I have a good, uh, uh, the, one of the best GMs probably in the country. I'd put him up against anybody. I mean, and I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, because he's lived in New York and he's been managing partners. But honestly, is that they all know when the chips are down, I can open this restaurant. I can close this restaurant. Mm-hmm. I can go back there. My, you know, I, I love all my people. I respect my sous chef. I respect my chef. But you know what? I'm in with the line. I'm in with the people. I mean, I know the recipes. I can look at it. I don't even have to taste it. I mean, everybody is accountable. Mm. You know, everyone. So what I'm hearing from you is surround yourself with amazing people. You're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. But other than that, uh, 
in, in, in order to execute to the best, you have to surround yourself with the people and then keeping uh, your, your thumb on the numbers and your, your finger on the numbers. Uh, and, pull, the and the operation. And the operation. Yes. So let's pull back one more layer on the numbers. Uh, you, you mentioned P&Ls, but like, what's one thing? Like, what one thing that you think most restaurant owners don't think of? Can you give us like a, a, a nugget in itself regarding how to pay attention, like a thing you can do to, to, to take your numbers game up a level. I mean, is that too specific? Well, you know, I just think everybody has a different philosophy on that. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, some people that maybe run a steakhouse may think that, you know, this is what their targets are and cost and this and that. They may look to top line a whole lot differently. You know, what I've learned is that everyone views this industry a little bit differently. I mean, you know, some you know some people will be very controversial in the fact that they think that they can grow it and they can make more money, but their their goal is different than mine, you know. And and so when I look at at like, you know, how people run their operations, I think some people watch it more than others. I think some people manage the wrong things, but by managing the wrong things, I mean is that you know is that they're taking shortcuts, just doing everything right. As you know, when we move to this brand here, you know, and we talk about a component that I added when I mentioned steakhouses being sexy, you know, it was all through leaving like Del Frisco's in 2010 and having an opportunity to just go across the country and spend more time in Vegas and more time in New York and more time in LA seeing. Why are all these big chefs now wanting steakhouses? You know, because I was just concentrating on one brand. Mm. And, you know, and I'm going, okay, you know, what are they doing? Like, you know, what's the core steakhouse doing? What are people doing differently? How, you know, how does that work? And leaving in 2010, I was just wanting to do something different. When you mentioned Dean Lincoln's Tasting Room and Bubble Bar. I was like, I'm not going back in upscale steak business. I'm, I'm like done. It's been 40 you know, years there. It was like unbelievable, you know. Yeah. And what do I do? I meet a gentleman and he's like, don't try to to uh, grow a one D. Lincoln steakhouse. Like, you know, go do something different, you know, kind of something that you can scale. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. I'm like, this guy's back guy's, here again. He's back here again <laughs> sitting there and saying to me, like, you know, let's go grow this. And I look at where I sit today and the best days of my life and my career, I should say, was when I did one thing great. Mm. And that is where I'm at today. I tried other things. You know, I, I thought I could go to the casual space. I'm going to do steak and burger. Well, hello, you should have a core steakhouse. And if you want to do a burger joint that's really good. I think people would get it. But when you put two under one roof, so my version of D. Lincoln Steak and Burger Bar was no differently than all these other people that were doing grills. What does it do? In my opinion, it confuses the consumer. Mm-hmm. So let's go into your story now of your, your D. Lincoln brand. What were you doing differently that you think, or I mean, this is your own brand now. You get to start from a, a, a clean slate, right? Who have you become up to this point to do it right? How are you going forward? What was your strategy for opening and developing this brand? Interestingly enough is that, again, with Jamie and a great story to tell on that, you know, um, of how the D. Lincoln brand, he always said to me, you know, D. Lincoln is a brand. It's synonymous with Del Frisco's, Del Frisco's with D. Lincoln. But it was all tied into that that combination. So when I left and, and, and Jamie resigned at, at 
the sale in 2006. I didn't leave till 2010. I was reading the paper one day, and I saw that that at the time it was the Cowboy Stadium. It was not AT and T that sold. They sold the the naming rights a year later, but I saw that. They, the Cowboys, were, you know, were looking for a wine bar. Mm-hmm. And I had actually seen this amazing little concept with these cuvee systems. And truthfully in Paris, and it was like this whole, you know, buy a two, four, six ounce pour, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Vegas again, you know, I, you know, so I see it in Vegas. And then ironically, I go, to, it, like we go to New Orleans and there's even a, like a little wine store that has these cuvee systems. And I'm like, you know, it's like, so I'm starting to see these things popping up, but I go to Vegas and I really like figure out like what, you know, what is this? What do these wine rooms look like? And what are they doing with these, these cuvee systems? So I had actually been blessed enough to have a really good relationship with the Jones family. And so they build in the stadium and I see that they have this wine bar situation and it, the whole thing falls apart. So I go, Oh my gosh, opportunity. I'm, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to conceptualize a wine room you know, I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I mean, literally, I'm going to go to the Joneses and say, I have this idea. So I did exactly that. Okay. So it's like 2009 and they're like, literally the stadium is going to open in six months. Okay. <laughs> and I actually am sitting, having dinner w- with, you know, some of the, their executives and I kind of tell them about this little piece. And I said, Oh, I saw this. And, and you know, and, and I really think that this, that I've seen a couple of locations in the stadium. I kind of got behind the scenes and I said, I, there's an opportunity for on a sweet level that we could do this great little wine bar. And it was managed by a big company. It was managed by legends. And so, and at the time, the gentleman running it, Ironically, he's now the mayor of Dallas, Mike Rollins. But um, so, you know, the Jones family, there's like this ex- ex- executives are like, go, you got to pitch just to, to legends. Okay. Because they manage in all the concessions. I go there and it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, uh, n- n- that's never going to work. I mean, like, it, what are you thinking, D? And they knew me and they knew what, of me. So, you know, I have legends going, it doesn't work. I go, listen, think about this. You have 300 suites. How are you going to inventory all these wines for all 300 suites? How big is that number going to be? If we have a small little wine bar on one of the suite levels and it's got, you know, 36, 48, 60 wines by the glass, you can sell silver oak, you can sell Camus, you can sell Groth, <laughs> you know, then all of a sudden we got all these great wines. So if you don't have it on your list, you know, then they can come here and get this great glass of wine. And... You know, so we went back and forth, went back and forth. And so the name came up. So you ask about the D. Lincoln brand. So although I knew that my name was strong and I was very respected in the industry, it was this moment that happened when D. Lincoln really became a brand. And it was when I said, we finally figured out that we were going to launch this little wine bar and we were going to put in champagne so it would be like you know so i have to come up with a name so i say okay i'm gonna present to the jones family and i'm gonna go i want to put a d lincoln's inside of your billion dollar stadium Uh, not so much okay so i said bella vino 
Bella is my daughter's name. Okay. It's a beautiful wine. Okay. It gets back to Jerry, and he goes, Bella Vino? Nothing against your beautiful daughter. We know Bella. You know. He goes, but why would <laughs> my guest with two, all these fabulous bars throughout the stadium go to Bella Vino? You are a brand. So y'all figure it out. If y'all want to do this wine bar, you need to call it D. Lincoln something. D. Lincoln is a brand. Mm. And I was like, oh my. I spent 30 years and now the reality is D. Lincoln is a brand. And so I literally said, okay, you know, started kicking around some things and I go, okay, wine, tasting room, champagne, bubbles. D. Lincoln's Tasting Room and Bubble Bar. And awesome. that's how the D. Lincoln brand was founded. And this was in 2009. Nine. 2009. And you've since, in the, over the past 10 years, opened an event space. And also you have Prime or D. Lincoln Prime. Uh, anything, I mean, I, I, I want to make sure we get, like we round off your story because we're I, we, this has been a great conversation. We're already over an hour. We still have some <laughs> speed round. I mean, I'm going to let you kind of just go free range. What? you think is most important that we cover in the time we have left so like the next 10 or 15 minutes okay so so definitely so realizing it was a brand it was like that so um without a doubt like i said i dabbled in a casual space the whole nine yards you know and did the d lincoln steak and burger bar and i'm happy to talk about that you know just by saying is that you know it was not my wheelhouse it was not my space i made a very tough decision so there was one concept you had to close out of the uh, well, it was and actually i had Two locations, and I made a quick decision to close it because after D. Lincoln's Tasting Room and Bubble Bar and this little stunt and the casual piece, Jerry and Steven took me to dinner, and I knew that this the star was the new world headquarters for the Dallas Cowboys, and they were looking for an anchor steakhouse and said, we want D. Lincoln to be the anchor steakhouse. So I kind of feel like I know what the lesson is here, but what is the lesson? The lesson was, is that you said it earlier. I feel like (laughs) I was, I was a brand and it, but I was, I, they wanted something special. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at what they do. You know, everything they do is unique and there's nothing like it. And they wanted, they wanted the anchor steakhouse to to be about an individual as much as it was about being in this fabulous location i'm like itching in my seat right now because i kind of just want to come out and say it but you said earlier i was at my happiest when i did one great when i did what i did one thing great yeah one great place it was yes for sure without a doubt and interestingly is that when we had that conversation he said all these things you dabble in. There's the you know there's the tasting room and bubble bar. It's only open for you know big events, football games, a couple of concerts. I mean you know we open 20, 20 events a year in AT and T Stadium. The place uptown is like you know there again was um, D Lincoln's tasting room and bubble bar is what it opened to be, and it was made it an event center. Why? Because you know, it was wasn't going to pull all my time, but he said all of these things you got to figure out because you got to get all of that pretty much 
off your plate and concentrate because you have always said it and you proved it by Spring Valley back in the day. <laughs> one thing great. And I mean great. One thing great. And I left there in 2015 and I never looked back. Mm. I said, I am going all in. And that's when I made a decision to close the little casual spots. Closed it the very next month. Went home and told my daughters. And said, you know, this is not for me. It's not my wheelhouse. I'm, I am okay with closing, closing it because I'm about to build the best thing that I've ever done in my career. I am about to build D. Lincoln Prime. It's for, you know, my lore and legacy. It's for you. It's for our family. And we are going to do it like no other. Mm. And that's how D. Lincoln Prime was born. I love it. It's a great story. And two years to build it. Two years. My girlfriend and I picked every fabric, every light fixture, every painting, work with local artists, work with the local wine cellar company. We did everything inside these four walls for two years with hard hats on every day of labor of love. Did not use a design team. Um, my, My architect built those beautiful columns that you see in the restaurant. Had Googled the 10 most beautiful restaurants in the country. That was in Japan and Tokyo. Uh, mixed up some colors. They had two different designs. Two brothers built it next door. Nine months. Those columns, the curves in the columns, was his wife's curling iron, solid cherry, and stained oh, every piece. Put it together. And my husband, that I've only been married to since September, is who pushed me because we were at you know together for four years and he said you got the biggest names in sports you are family to the joneses you need to do this for your daughter she needs to see she was too young when you left the your career with del frisco's and it's in your dna it's who you are and you need you need to do this. And I said, okay, the only good thing that happened about those burger bars is where I met you. I didn't know. <laughs> so it was all worth it. Beautiful. But, and I just went all in. And what I realized through the, through the journey was that my daughter was too young, even though she understood the life that my previous career gave me. She was like, yeah, my mom started Delphus goes. I mean, you know, she's six years old. Yeah. You know, what does a six-year-old know? Ten, she, when I got don't her all. appreciate this. what they know. It's they, all relative. Yeah, it's age. all together. What she knew when I built D. Lincoln Prime is that every day my mom is there in a hard hat. Mm-hmm. Every day my mom's working. Every day I'm seeing what she does. Mm-hmm. And November the 14th of 2017, after a two-year build-out, like everything, construction takes longer than you ever imagined. 400 people stood in this restaurant, and we recognized, you know, all the people that made it possible. And the thing leading up to that was what said to me that my culture and my soul and my leadership mattered was because all the people that came on board to work for me. After all these years of being out of the upscale business, seven years, knocking my door down, going, Miss D, Miss D, we want to work for you again. That's the power of a reputation, it's right? Like, and they go, and they go, 
six nights again, no Sundays and no lunches, and it's still like this. And that's what I opened up for back in the early days. Now it's they open seven days, seven nights, Christmas, Thanksgiving. No, the culture is here mm. in these walls. The soul is here. Walk the hall before you leave. You I can, will. And start at the very one end to the other. It's my whole 30-plus year career from New Orleans to the two steak houses, to open in Spring Valley, to launch in New York, to my not-so-successful casual <laughs> business, to the D-Lincoln Tasting Room above Bar in the stadium, to the one uptown that it converted into a, an event center, to building this, to the Hall of Fame with Jerry Jones and his family, to a blended family when we got married in September. It's a 30-plus-year it. career, and it's the whole journey. I share it with my guests every night and all these people we just celebrated our one year anniversary one year now we're 14 months in and i did our christmas party two sundays ago the weekend of dubai before super bowl from the dishwasher to the general manager every person i took them to another steakhouse and i wanted them to see how great we do things why did i add sushi again edge Sexy. I put the sushi component in it. I didn't want the tower with the oysters and the lobster and the shrimp. I didn't not to take anything away from it, but I wanted the core meat potatoes that I went back to. Mm-hmm. Steak, good sides, both sides. Still those New Orleans flavors come out in every dish. I wanted a big, big, big emphasis on seafood, a big commitment to seafood, not secondary. And then the sushi. But, I, you know, it's like we do hot bread. We don't do hot bread like... Every table, if you want it, it's there. But the sushi, it's added so much to our check average. <laughs> it's added so much to, God, we can go get a little roll. or We don't have a lot. Look at the menu. It's what we do. We do great. Mm. I have loved this conversation, Dee. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to give one more nugget, one more lesson, one more philosophy, one more value before we go to the speed round. And then I'm going to ask one more. Actually, I'll ask one more question after that. <laughs> Drop it on us if you have As it. I said, just do what, you know, concentrate on one thing. Don't be all things to all people. Mm. I think that we know deep down in here what it is. And sometimes we go in a different direction. I did it. I did it through mm-hmm. my career. You know, but just concentrate and go after it. Yes. There is nothing there is nothing that the, you can't do. And this is a new question I'm asking all my guests. And my mission statement is to in- inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So let me ask you, how have you transformed over your career? Who were you twenty when you were 22 years old getting involved in this industry to who you are today? How have you transformed? Back then, I was, I was learning as I go. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, you know, and I... I absorbed everything I could in every aspect of it. And what I transformed to is that I started in one way and I was good at operations. I didn't know the, all the business components of it. What I transformed to today is an overall great restaurateur where I know every aspect of my business. What I've transformed to is I've learned balance. Mm. I've learned that, you know, you have to know how to, how to keep um, professional personally. I mean, and you know, I've learned how to trust, to understand that I've put so much into my leadership that I've instilled into other people to learn how to trust, but always keep my finger on the pulse 
always give it to them, but always know Trust that I can track, pull, right? pull it back if I, I have it. to. And, you know, and so, it, and also is that now I can really, you know, give, just give that feedback that, you know, it's great or not so great. I just see it now and I speak to it right when it's happening. D, I've loved this conversation. You have been amazing to speak with. We're going to take one more break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've you got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto, that's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash unstoppable. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel, and I can tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grand Junction Subs in the Craft Cave, to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Revel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? (laughs) People. People. What is your biggest weakness? I always say, uh, don't mistake kindness for weakness, mm. but I'm very, um, um, I just, I, I love so big that sometimes I think it's missing. So your biggest strength is people. And it's, I think it's safe to say your biggest strength is, or your biggest weakness is people probably because you cared so much, right? Mm-hmm. I get that. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? When you're building that team. I always like to, to talk to people about what their immediate goal is. They want three and five year, you know. Um, but I want to know more about, the, you know, attitude. It just, it just, it is, you know, it's like, I, you know, the, you know, I want to see what their, what their will is mm-hmm. more than a lot of times their experience. Got you. What is your biggest challenge today? Wow. Um, not to grow because you can, <laughs> the people are getting yep, less. I get you. The challenge is, yep. the challenge is your team always. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This is a way to go above and beyond. Um, first name, understanding what they love, they like, dislike. What is one code of conduct? This is a way to be a core value. 
kind. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? Setting the table. What's the, your biggest lesson from that book? You know, Danny Mars was, um, you know, just what we talked about earlier. Keep your finger on the pulse. Mm-hmm. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Hands on. What is one technology you've adopted over the past recent years that has had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, and operations, profitability in general, anything like that? Point of sales. <laughs> Which one are you using now? I use Focus. Okay. And what, what is it about Focus that sold you on it? Well, it's, you know, it's very user-friendly because I'm still a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> without a, without I didn't mean a, to say, mm-hmm, like I was agreeing. No, 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 it's true. It's, <laughs> I actually am. So it's very user-friendly. Um, but without a doubt, we can access things so much easier now. It's accessible to us. Got you. And this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? If you got the news, you'd, leave, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom. Uh, three things you know to be true that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. This is a deep question. What would they be? Always be honest. One. Um. Stay humble, no matter what. Two. Carry on, my legend. I love this. This has been an incredible conversation, D. Lincoln. Thank you so much for making the <laughs> time you. to share your story, to share your knowledge, to share your mentorship. Uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. Who is one person you respect and admire in this industry and believe would be a great guest mentor like you've been for us today? I have to say Jamie. Jamie, look out. I'm Jamie coming quotes after you. Here. Jamie quotes her. Yeah, I just have to because, you know, when you, you get to a certain level in, in your career, you know, and you're mentoring below, it's like, and then all of a sudden, I'm, you know, one great place. But, you know, it's like, so for sure, you know, Jamie would be that mentor. And how can we uh, follow your work, connect, maybe come join your team? What's the best way to connect? Best way, dlincolnprime.com. But you know what? I'd prefer to just give you my cell number. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you head over to restaurantunstoppable.com, if you head over to the show notes, I'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as a link to all the tool services and books recommended and how to connect with D in the show notes. Again, D, thank you so much for taking the time to share your, your knowledge and everything. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. I love it. Thank you Cheers. for actually sharing it with me. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Before I let you go, I have to remind you, please sign up for the Restaurant Unstoppable email list. That is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here, where I'm at, what's on my mind, and what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like, and you can have an influence on that. Don't forget to connect on social media. That's slash Restaurant Unstoppable on Facebook and at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C. C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.